We don't explain the music when the music starts. We let the music speak for itself. Um, we should be... How great would it be to be in a situation where the trust between the audience and what goes on across that threshold is so symbiotic that they come in and they know they're in for an experience. They buckle their seatbelts and they're in for a ride. Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. Happy Monday, everybody. My day uh, started off with a bang, came downstairs a little early, woke up early for me around seven, and um, we've got this little three-legged table that's next to the uh, sofa and the, and the chair that I like to sit in. I had uh, some Italian soda left over from last night in one of those big 500-ounce cups that I drink out of. And uh, I mix it with sparkle water, as my daughter calls it, so don't get too excited. It's not all sugar, just a splash. And uh, I had a box of Kleenex on the table. My wife had left, you know, maybe um, an eighth of a cup of tea on that little table. I also put my big mug of coffee down on that table. And I was uh, on my phone looking at the news, which I do every morning. It's kind of uh, my version of reading the paper. And I reach over to grab my coffee as uh, I'm looking at my phone. And yeah, you guessed it. The whole thing came down and uh, hit the sofa first. Went across the sofa. It's like a, it was like a geyser. It's like a sideways geyser. It shot across our navy blue velvet sofa. Trickled down uh, onto the floor. This whole thing happened in slow motion. Hit the floor. Another gusher. The tea and the coffee shot across our rug, all the way across the face of the sofa. So the front of the sofa, the top of the sofa, the rug, everything came crashing down. Woke up my son. I used just about every towel in that. You know what? This happens to everybody, right? I'm sure it's happened to you. But it's just one of those things, one of those days that happens. You see it happening and, and you can't do anything about it. And the more I tried to reach to grab something from spilling, the more I was hitting the other things, making them spill. So that was it. I got out the carpet cleaner and sopped everything up. That, that was my day. I've got Sarah Widzer on the show today. She's a director, an opera director. Uh, we've worked together years ago, about eight years ago. And it's funny, she came into mind uh, two weeks ago when I had Jennifer Miller on the show. And uh, Sarah directed that same Faust that we did eight years ago in the Pasadena Women's Center. Sarah has since gone on to great things. She directs all over the, the country. And um, she's just a really great gal. She's very smart very highly educated, well-trained in the art of directing, has directed many, many shows, has great ideas. I like her very much, and uh, we had a terrific conversation. It gets a little technical here and there about directing. It's perfect for people who are in the biz or interested in what it's like to direct an opera, the kinds of the kind of uh, thinking that goes into it, and uh, Sarah is uh, a real thinker, so I think you're really going to enjoy it. What else? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm starting a new thing. Um, about three days before the Garrison Keillor um, fiasco happened, and I call it a fiasco, not only because it seems as if he may have uh, done some pretty lousy things outside of the gr grabbing under the shirt routine that he's claiming. You know, Garrison Keillor brought in a lot of money for a lot of people, and so you have to think that the, the uh, income that radio stations and producers and all those people that he employed were making um, was outweighed by the liability that we don't know about. That's I, I have to believe that. I, do, I don't want to believe it's a witch hunt because I love Garrison Keillor and uh, I'm sorry that it happened and I love listening to the Writer's Almanac. I listen to it almost every day. Thanks to my friend Marty Schaefer who turned me on to it a few years ago and of course Prairie Home Companion. A lot of people think that stuff's boring but I love it and I'm going to miss it. It's already off the air, like gone, uh, overnight. Everything was gone. You can't even get archives. It's the strangest thing. It's like George Orwell. It's Orwellian for sure. 
So hopefully it'll shake out in a way that uh, isn't as heartbreaking as I think it might be. But anyway, that's beside the point. About three days before that happened, coincidentally, I was thinking about uh, making my own show. Uh, because I like the Writer's Almanac so much, and I, I'm interested not only in, in authors and essayists, but, um, you know, painters and obviously musicians, uh, composers, performers, architects, all sorts of things. And so I thought, you know, why not make an artist's almanac where I can cover a broad spectrum of, um, um, you know, people in their fields. I don't know what I'm trying to say. But anyway, I've started it. I've uh, written the copy for this week. I'm going to try and put it up later today or tomorrow. And uh, I'll send you all a link. If you're subscribed to my uh, podcast, you'll receive a link. All right. So check it out. We'll see how it goes. It's very coincidental that, that this whole thing came to mind just a couple days before Dick Garrison Keeler went down. So I don't know. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening. Here is Sarah Widzer. There we go. Okay. Well, I just had a little technical difficulty, but it looks like we're on. Yep. Yep. We're running. Okay. Sarah Widzer. Oh, Mark Rook. We worked together uh, about eight years ago at, uh, doing a Faust in uh in a little rickety cabin in Pasadena. I think it was the women's <laughs> the women's center. center. And it really did look like a rickety, rickety cabin when bit. you went, went through the front door. Exactly. Yeah, everything was uneven. It seemed like it had suffered a few earthquakes. It was appropriate for Faust and Faust's uh, living room when you walked in and he was sitting at the table. Exactly. I know. It's so weird, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, I've talked about these little gigs that I do. And maybe it's the same for directors, too. I, I would like to get your... Uh, ideas about it but i did maybe seven or eight of those little free shows and it led to me singing at opera san jose in a as alma viva because their young artists or resident artists couldn't sing alma viva and i had done it one of these little free shows at a church somewhere with a strung on beard <laughs> touche touche <laughs> so take it <laughs> is that the same with directing i think so i think um it's all right is that going to be a problem? I don't think so. Okay. She's she's our background. It adds to the, <laughs> it's the, it's the, the mise-en-scene. <laughs> it's the chorus in yes. the background. Um, I think so. I think for a director, it gives us an opportunity to play. Yeah. And just like... Experiment. With, with no real strings attached. No except liability. Except your string on beard. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I would love to do Faust again in a similar way where... Faust is at his study. What if I open the door? I think she'll be in? happier. She'll okay. stop barking. I'm going to open the door. <laughs> <laughs> We're still rolling. That's okay. We can keep rolling. Come on in, Mim. Um, what kind of dog is that? She is a Maltese poodle mix. Oh, we've got standard poodles. So she's, people call her a multi-poo, but I call her a moodle. Oh, that's nice. It's better than a pooey malt, I guess. Oh, a pooey malt. From now on, that's what you are, Mim. You're a pooey malt. Um, no, I, you know, we got to, we had to think outside the box because we didn't even have a box. Sure. You know, so the fact that we had this you know, um, what am I, uh, the fireplace that everybody could walk in through and keep it right on. Keep, um, okay. yes. the fireplace and that, you know, why not put Faust there? Yeah. Why not have the audience be, we didn't have a real theater. So exactly. create the space. You know, I loved having Mephisto come in from outside. Right. Because where else are you going to get to do that? Yeah. Or it just, Sometimes those types of spaces give us more freedom than yeah. being given a set that was not yours and a set of costumes that was not yours. Sure. And then you're told make, make it a work. Show. And then and then maybe you develop some concepts for that show or maybe shows in the future that you can use that come out of that kind of challenge. Very much so. Like I, if to do Faust again, I would always have dancers for Mm -hmm. Mephistopheles. Yeah, what is that? The Valpurgis knocked or what mm -hmm. is that that scene? Yeah. But then also we had them because we needed them to move set pieces around. Right. And they ended up following him around. And the more that I've seen productions of Faust now, funny enough, 
fast. He's he, got his groupies. He usually has his groupies. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, but since then, <laughs> but since then, you've really come up the ranks. Oh, I mean, you're directing you. at uh, Washington National. You, I'm assisting, but thank you. Well, yes. you know, yeah. and and uh, Glimmer Glass, mm-hmm. and uh, where else? I've let's drop at, some names. Let's drop some names. Um, so I got my master's at Florida State. Yes. Why Florida State? It is one of the few opera directing programs, masters in the country. And at the time, so between 2009, 2010, I realized I needed or I wanted to go back to school to learn how to speak to classical musicians and Mm -hmm. speak opera talk because all I knew was theater talk. Which is strange because your grandmother was a concert, very well-known concert pianist. Correct. And your... You grew up in music. Correct. You grew up singing. I did. So what do, had, What other things did you need to learn? Um, I knew nothing about opera. Oh, how interesting. Absolutely nothing about opera. My first opera that I saw was Magic Flute. No, it was great. Okay. It had puppets All and right. it, it wasn't Julie Taymor, but it had puppets and yes. it was marionettes and it was something that my elementary school took all the kids to. Where was that? We I went to Curtis up on Mulholland. Uh-huh. So, you know, someone back then thought it was good to take the kids to see some Mozart. And, and was it, it downtown? Is that where you went? I have this, I might be mixing memories, yeah, yeah. but um, the uh, Bob Baker marionette. Oh yeah, downtown. So yeah. they, I have this memory of, we did a Pier Gint down there and also I think it was a magic flute. If not, there was a field trip somewhere to see magic flute. Oh, that's neat. Um, And I loved it and yeah. it seemed like a musical, but it, who knew it was in German, whatever. Yeah. And then it wasn't until I was in high school studying um, world performance theater that I was introduced to Robert Wilson. Okay. And loved his work, fell in love with him. Me too. But only knew him really as a director. And it wasn't that opera. I didn't understand the difference between musical theater and opera. And guess what? There isn't one. Um, which is a, a, a new realization I would come to after my education. But it just seemed like because of the foreign language and my grandmother had created a stigma that it was an entity so far into its own that... Like it was rarefied in some way or... It was just not accessible to me. It wasn't even in my hemisphere. I mean, I'd been introduced to all theater, all musical theater, dance, uh-huh. classical music, but opera just was not accessible was not around. I see. Um, we used to listen to all the soundtracks of all the musicals we would go see yeah. or all, you know, concerts. And that music just wasn't in my... Your vernacular. In my jukebox, yeah. in my brain jukebox. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... So I took... I remember I took my sister to see Robert Wilson's Butterfly mm-hmm. at the at LA Opera sometime in, 2000, in the 2000s, early mm-hmm. 2000s. And mesmerized for the directing but also bored because of the speed of the piece huh okay um and i didn't understand that it was the speed of wilson's um you mean the pacing yeah i didn't understand so i thought opera was boring Gosh, because I loved it, and I loved the I loved the uh, Parsifal as well. I thought the Parsifal was just incredible. It's one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. I have never seen it, so oh. now I need to go. Well, to it was Pla- that was Placido's last. Was it tenor? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, and that was I think around two thousand two, two thousand three, something like that. Uh oh. We are just come on mm. in. Sorry, everybody. It's just a party at my house today. Sorry. That's okay. Okay. Have fun. Thank you. Bye. Okay, nice to meet you. It's all right. You know, it's part of the show. It's part it's of my life. Roll. It's just what it is. It's, you know, when you're home from a gig and you live at home, they're all the people and all the players. That's it. Um, so, I mean, when we did Faust, it seemed to me that the sensibility uh, or the directorial style was traditional. Now, some of the concepts, I think, and the way that you manipulated, like, for instance, the groupies and things like that, and things that you added to facilitate the performance in that crazy, strange space, were a little bit non-traditional. But it seemed to me that the, that um, 
what I'm getting at is what do you think of Robert Wilson and employing that type of technique? I don't I haven't followed your directing since then. In terms then. of concept Yeah, so type do of you work? like avant-garde directing? Do you like I love it. I Zeffirelli? Mean, I mean, where where do you fall? Everywhere and I know that's not a specific enough answer, but in um so the work that I've done, I mean, you asked me a little bit about, so I went on to Florida State, got my master's, mm-hmm. and the work that I did there was pretty traditional. My thesis was Jongleur de Notre Dame sure. by Massenet, and I said it pretty traditionally mm-hmm. because the emphasis on that syllable is mm-hmm. the storytelling. Sure. And I don't know. Do you have that kind of latitude with a piece that's not so well known? Is that part of it as well? I think so. I for me, it was important to get the story across and mm-hmm. it being a medieval morality play. I also was so taken by the period piece, uh, period instruments and mm-hmm. what can be done. Um, I geek out about dramaturgy. And mm-hmm. if there was a reason the piece was written at the time that it was written to tell a specific story, I feel like it is my job to first dig, dig, dig. Mm-hmm at what the librettist or the playwright yeah, or the who composer... The, who was the librettist of that piece? Do you remember? Um, I'm putting you on the spot. You are totally putting me That's on the okay spot, and don't. I don't at the moment, but it's based on the morality play. Was it a French morality play? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I'm terrible with that. That's but all right. it was it was a it was a play before it was I see. an actual libretto. Um my favorite style when coming up through directing ranks and going to school for directing was German expression of German expressionism and avant-garde. So my undergrad directing thesis was Spring Awakening mm-hmm. by Frank Wedekind. And um, it was set period influenced, but with um, giant masks. And I used a lot of Suzuki and viewpoints mm-hmm. work and... Um, a lot of influence in um, physical theater and just theater, the grotesque. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's what is the story we're trying to tell. I mean, I was, when I first came into opera, I was directing a production of As You Like It set in Andy Warhol's factory. And we put a live band on stage and we took, you know, songs, we took Shakespeare's songs out and put in, well, we, it was a good. It was an educational experience because I, we didn't get any royalties for any of the music that we did. But it was right. rock and roll, and you know, sure. Rosalind wore a leather jacket and a cap and looked very um, James Dean like. Sure. And did you throw very some mod- Lou Reed in there? Uh, that that was what a Perfect Day was. What they sang instead of a Lady in a Lass. There you go. So that's definitely not traditional and definitely yeah. not. Um, Lady and Alas. I think Roger Quilter set that as well. Very pretty. Did he? Yeah. There's some amazing, amazing Shakespeare song cycles. And that's honestly why I'm in opera, is all I wanted was to direct musical Shakespeare. Yeah. Now, uh, you're coming at what you're talking about like uh, a stage director, a drama director. Do you find that you prefer working with singers who... Uh, singers who can act or actors who can sing. I would imagine an opera one definitely is heavier than the other. But do you, how do you come at it as a director with your cast? Everybody's a singing actor, uh-huh. um, because singing is so. It's again, it's like Shakespeare. When we look at Shakespeare, we look at blank verse, and then you get into rhyme. You know. Sure. And then at the final part is rhyming couplets, and then you get to song in Shakespeare. Um, it's no different in opera. You can have the characters are singing. They don't know they're singing, but the world is so heightened, so they are singing. And then some of them happen to get into situations where their singing becomes even more heightened, mm-hmm. and then they might even sing a song. Do you ever get to sing with singers who can't act at all? I don't know, Omar, have you ever worked with opera singers who can't act? Sure, I'm one of those people. <laughs> no, stop it. <laughs> Cut it out. You are not by any means. <laughs> so what do you there. do? Um, that's why I went to school. You make them do jumping jacks and make faces. And Did we do that? Did I know. make you do jumping jacks? No, but jacks? you know, you get them out of their Well, you get them out of their zone. head. But also, sure. one of the beautiful things about going to school was to learn how to talk about the drama and the music from a musical perspective. Yes. And so... 
one of the things I like to geek out with some of my students about is how Mozart wrote all the stage directions into his music, but they're called dynamics. Hmm. So there's an exercise I do with some of my students where you don't have to have done any, you know, and it's again, it's like a Shakespeare exercise when you're dealing with punctuation. Mm-hmm. Um, forget about your backstory and your who are you and your objective and what do you want and what is Mozart? Mozart's telling you to sing piano here. Mozart's telling you to continue singing piano, mm-hmm. piano, 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 piano. What's that mean about someone who's singing piano? And then all of a sudden you have a forte. Or, you know, look at the um, different way chords progress. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're looking in um, the, in the red... position of your vocal line within that chord. What does exactly. that mean? Exactly. Sure. You know, or in, in certain arias or in certain duets in like the big mm-hmm. Mozart three... When the repetition happens and there is a melody change, what's mm-hmm. it mean? What's mm-hmm. happened? Or if all of a sudden you're singing in unison with your partner, mm-hmm. um, you can also look at the um, the accents and where Mozart puts the accents on which s- syllables. Again, it's which emphasis are you syllabic? Boy, so you've really got to know what, what markings are editorial and what, which ones are authentic and which ones... That sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot of work, wow. but it's so much fun. It's really <laughs> fun to geek out about. And I think in those circumstances, especially with Mozart, and you can do it with um, the other bel canto, composers as well you can do it with Rossini and you can do it with Donizetti mm-hmm. Elixir is a really good one to do it with because the storyline is something that's very accessible for graduate students and young mm-hmm. singers so you can easily see especially when you're going in um, when you're dealing with recit and recit into non-accompanied recit into accompanied recit sure. into, this, into the music right that um, if I speak to you in your language, you get a little more comfortable and a little more willing to dig into the areas that are scary. Mm-hmm. If I throw objective or um, beat work, which is not musical beat work mm-hmm. or verb work at someone who's never heard that language before, it's not a comfortable world. And I, sure. it's my, I feel like it's my job as a director or it's our job as directors to facilitate a situation that everyone is able to I put the um, I bring the jungle gym to the table Mm -hmm. and I'll create the way to get on the jungle gym Mm -hmm. and the way to get off the jungle gym and the type of surrounding that the jungle gym is sitting on Mm -hmm. But how you climb around that jungle gym, Omar, is so much more interesting than me telling you, put your right foot here and put your left foot here. Now yeah. swing to there. I see my honeymoon. <laughs> but if you're not comfortable with sure. n- navigating that jungle gym, you're not even going to step onto it. Sure. Now, it sounds like you spend a lot of time uh, working to interpret what the composer and perhaps the librettist had intended for the drama and the dramaturgy itself, the way the story's put together. Do you ever actively fight against that in the attempt of making something more interesting that's al- than, than is already there? We did it in Faust. Oh. We switched it around. And I guess, I don't know if I would do it now, but in some ways maybe my naivete and my ignorance in opera made it more... Um, and now would you see it as arrogance or, or um, hubris? I, How would you view it differently I don't know now? if I would see it as arrogant. I would see it as... Like, like, why wouldn't you do it now when you had done it then? I mean, I know that, that maybe you're sick with experience in some way or you've oh, learned no, something. It's, or... It's, I used to be such a purist about Shakespeare and had a real hard time cutting it. And then I started to realize that it all becomes adaptation, right? At mm-hmm. one point, after the original production of it, it's now an adaptation, right? And it's alive, and and it's living and it's breathing today, mm-hmm. and that's more important to me. I am. I feel like it is our job to honor these pieces, keep them living and breathing, not in a vacuum, so that the stories, the reason that the stories were written in the political context or the emotional context or the, you know, socioeconomic context in Mm -hmm. which they were written, that those undercurrents can resonate again today. Mm -hmm. 
And I think if we respect that as being the reason we're taking something out of context or moving something around, then it's okay. Um, I I think it's a case-by-case situation. Mm -hmm. We moved... God, what did we do? We moved... We swapped two scenes in Faust so that... And if I think back correctly, we did it originally to have an easier transition because we had no flies, we had no mm-hmm. ability to change scenes. Um, but what it allowed was for Valentin to see Marguerite and see her pregnant because we had I had decided to make her pregnant, mm-hmm. which I remember caused a whole hell of a lot of uproar with all our patrons in Pasadena. Um but then when we had the baby casket in oh, the final right, in the scene, jail. in the final scene, right. everyone was like, wow, that makes so much more sense. Like, of course, it ups the stakes. And I said, well, if there's going to be a baby casket, we had to have a pregnancy first. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. the, but they, but they, they didn't have a problem with the baby casket. They had a problem with her being pregnant. Right. Um, but well, this, how could she possibly deserve an apotheosis? <laughs> there you go. God doesn't like that sort of thing. No, 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 no. Um, but the swapping of the scenes, I remember we did it to facilitate an easier scene transition. I probably would do it again now because otherwise there is not the same type of relationship between Marguerite and Valentin. Mm-hmm. So... Well, it changes the dynamic between all of them. Uh, everyone. Even Mephistopheles. A hundred percent. Um so I think it's a case-by-case situation. I mean, when I first started directing Shakespeare, I don't think I would have willingly and comfortably set something in, mm-hmm. you know, the 19, late 1950s, mm-hmm. 1960s. And um, now it's just that piece works so well there. Sure. But it's, like I said, it's a case-by-case. Um, I learned a lot about dramaturgy and updating or setting a piece when I worked with Francesca Zambello on Dutchman on mm-hmm. her production of Dutchman because she was really interested in the humanity of the Dutchman and the humanity of Zenta and this was at a time there were many many interviews when I remounted the piece twice and when she initially did it Um, this was right after the big uh, oh my gosh what is the um, Jacob the werewolf and uh, Edward the vampire. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, the Twilight movies? Twilight, the Twilight right, books right, right. and Twilight movies. Right. So there was a whole big thing about the parallels between Dutchman and Twilight. Oh, I've never even thought of that. So, well, let me. Yes. Let me <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> let me um, enlighten you. That this um, young girl, and it's a piece about obsession, right? Sure. And all of us as teenagers can relate to putting a poster on the wall of the movie star, the rock star, the opera singer, the whoever mm-hmm. that we dream of. So Zenta is a young girl and she's got this poster, this painting of this famed mysterious man mm-hmm. um, who happens to show up at her door one day. I mean, when I was in uh, middle school, if Jason Priestley or Luke Perry had showed up at my door, I'm not really sure what I would have done. But if my father had said, Sarah, you're marrying one of them, I would have said, okay, (laughs) let's go. Um, No questions asked. But what Cheska was interested in pointing out was that um, the character of Eric is a grounded earthy individual he is a good man Mm -hmm. he is a hunter he works with his hands he loves senta um there is a relationship there between senta's father and him and they are heading towards expected uh, you know Mm -hmm. planned to get married Mm -hmm. and then there is this otherworldly exciting attractive mysterious dangerous Mm -hmm. not like the rest of the guys person man who shows up um that her father brings home and there are these articles about what age group likes edward and what age group likes jacob and younger girls have a fascination with 
the vampire and older women have a fascination with the grounded wolf. And I found that really interesting. Uh-huh. And it's, you know, they're, they're, it was just, it was really interesting to watch Cheska make those parallels and then to talk about, we spent a lot of time in pre-production and production. Um, well, I wasn't as involved in pre-production. It was in some dramaturgical um, assistant director emails, but they spent a lot of time talking about teen suicide because hmm. that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Sorry if that was a spoiler for anyone who's never mm-hmm. seen the show, but, you know, and how to handle that topic and how on the nose do you want it to be, right? And what story are you trying to tell? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it is it about the um, redemption? Is it because not every production does the extended ending with the redemption theme and all of that? Um, but at the end, the way that this piece ended was the curtain came after Senta, and the Dutchmen were ascending. There was a visual of that. There was a body double. Art Senta is on the bed with her father collapsed over it. And mm. the piece opens with Senta having a nightmare. And like a premonition. It, mm-hmm. So in many ways it could it's is it a dream in Senta's head? Is it a reality? But I love what Cheska did in the sense that she really narrowed in on the humanity of the piece mm-hmm. and the what story was Wagner trying to tell about mm-hmm. the relationship between a father and a daughter, a young woman and two different potential love interests, and also just the relationship of people in a society. Mm-hmm. Um, young women can be mean to one another and you really see what women, how young girls can treat one another in the sewing scene. Mm-hmm. You see camaraderie and um, brotherhood in the sailor scene. It's just, you said something about me talking like a, a, a theater director, uh, mm-hmm. being a, a straight play a, director. A, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I am. There's mm-hmm. no you know secret behind that, that my background is in that. But we're dealing with plays with music. Mm-hmm. In a world where it's so heightened that it's just, it's just sung. But, you know, there's, there pieces of opera that have spoken text um, and Sprechstimme, but they're plays set to music. Mm-hmm. So the best way I have found, and with my mentors guiding me as well, is to take the story. It all starts with the story. Mm-hmm. And helping the actors, the singing actors, see that their music... So the blocking that they do is a physical extension of their intention and the melody that they sing is an aural extension of Mm -hmm. their intention, if that makes any Mm -hmm. sense. Um, So that it all ties together to create one three-dimensional authentic story. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you uh, have trouble taking liberty with those things to say something... Uh, maybe outside of the realm of the intention of the composer and the librettist. Uh, for instance, like the politi- po- politicized, politi- politicized? Po- politicization of an opera that maybe wasn't designed for that. I think... Or do you always go back to the music and the libretto? and and? I always go back to why the composer and the librettist wrote the piece. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to fit it into, if I'm going to try to fit a square peg into a round hole, Mm -hmm. every component needs to fit. And if I'm trying to comment on, well, I haven't done, I haven't really done that so much in opera as I have in spoken theater. I haven't had as many opportunities or have I felt the need to? I felt, you know, I directed Susanna a couple of years ago, and that speaks very loudly in many ways to our world right now mm-hmm. in um, scapegoating and ostracizing people and mm-hmm. just every Xenophobia, theme in that piece. Yeah. That I find that sometimes hammering the nail too far on the head. Um, makes it too dogmatic 
even in today's uh, climate with our audiences the way they are? I like to give people an opportunity to take... I like the magic of theater. Yeah. I love the once upon a time of theater. Even pieces like Clifford Odets, which is, you know, 1935 about the labor strikes and someone write the opera and call me to direct it because <laughs> it really needs to be written. Um, there's no reason to repoliticize that because it is sure. political. And so much of opera is political. I mean, why repoliticize Aida when it is? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I appreciate what um, the piece I just worked on. It was contemporary, but it was neutral and not country specific, mm-hmm. which gave people enough opportunity to look at the themes in it, mm-hmm. but not try to identify which country were we trying to target. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would imagine you have to know how much trust you put into the audience, too. Like, for instance, we just did a Macbeth, uh, not a Macbeth, um, Nabucco with uh, Thaddeus Strasburger. And How did it go? I didn't get uh, to see it. It went, it went very well. I mean, Placido was singing the title role, so you put butts in seats. But uh, it truly was some of the best singing in 13 seasons there that I've ever heard on that wow. stage. I hear you did Valpensiero twice. So that was it. Um, in the context of the drama with, within the opera as it, as it is set and where where that piece is staged, I wanted to uh, have more of an impact. And I, I get the feeling that Thaddeus down yeah. he downplayed that That's scene I... a little bit. And then we gave it to them at the end in a way that was highly pol- politicized with the uh, um, uh, Austria-Hungarians in the box and the way the chorus looks up at them and basically you know gives an old F you to the old man and uh, and we did get some outbursts and some big applause and part of me though wanted it to be even more on the nose it's I'm so ah yes I mean <laughs> <laughs> you, you've walked around my house I mean I've got political art all over this house and that's half of it is mine and half of it is my parents and I was on a picket line at age five with yeah. my mom and I believe that the arts are the is the mechanism to save the world but also uh, like the fools and Shakespeare were the people that the people are going to listen to mm-hmm. that said we don't pay our paychecks we don't sign our paychecks. This is and a discussion this is what I've had before on the show. Makes me crazy. Right. I mean, if we were all <laughs> independently wealthy and didn't have to worry about paychecks, um, I, it it makes me angry that we have to think about that. Oh, me it, too. it makes me feel like we are caving to the man, so to speak, right. and like not speaking true to the work. The but, man should be paying us to criticize the man. Amen. That's Let's how go. it should be done. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, just we live in a we live in a country where there isn't state funded theater. Mm-hmm. So it comes from somewhere and that money. It's a question of. And how many contrarians do you know that are billionaires? That's tough. It's like there are a certain bunch, right, that have reached a certain place either by not caring at all Mm -hmm. what other people think. And that is a gift Mm -hmm. Um, to not care what other people think. It is one of my mentors, one of the things I appreciate so much about them is the importance to tell the story. And if it doesn't always land, so what? Mm Mm-hmm. But it's getting the story out and trying and getting messy. And I tell, it's, you know, we got to practice what we preach. I tell the artists I work with, get messy. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Fall down, get messy. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to see theater that makes me think. Yeah, me too. I don't want to see theater. And this is something that I try very hard in terms of my credo. And there's more noise yes. from outside now. Literally, we have <laughs> the, the guy is literally right outside the window. I can see. I'm really sorry, everyone. Welcome hat. to Los Angeles. It's never a dull moment. No, I know. Um, I don't want people to tell me what to think. Yeah. 
create an environment and I feel like this is like our obligation as artists to create an environment and to hold the mirror up to nature like Shakespeare says, right? And if it makes you think about anything, we have done our job. Mm-hmm. If I try too hard to tell you what to think, Omar, they're no longer your own thoughts. Well, well, that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> and, do, do we have our own thoughts? Uh, well, well, that's, that's um, I just I just finished reading A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. And I can't believe we read that book as children because. I know, right? That's a terrifying book. like, wait book. a minute, that's not the book I read. <laughs> but that's all about that. Um, that needs to be another opera, someone out there, right? Right. Wrinkle in Time. Um, People go to the opera for different reasons. I also think it depends on the audience, the city's audience. Um, The audience of a Beth Morrison produced piece is going to be a little more expecting of. um, A challenge, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. intellectual challenge, an intellectual challenge, an emotional challenge, Mm -hmm. a. A, a the vehicle and the bridge between the artistic world and the world in which we live in right um and the discussions that need to happen and yeah. that are inspired by it and mm-hmm. happen at intermission and afterwards mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and now that, the fax that's rings a fax the fax machine now rings holy moly this is an interview that omar is never <laughs> going to forget <laughs> um you know there's the la opera audience is an interesting one because i'm i didn't grow up with it i grew up with you know going to the amundsen and going to the taper mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and have become more familiar with the regional houses that i work in mm-hmm. Um, but Washington expects the challenge, you know, Washington, um, you know, different cities expect different things. I, if Mm -hmm. you can find the answer to this question, Omar, you have, you create the ability to keep this art form specifically alive as we move forward. Well, I've had the great privilege and pleasure to have worked with many directors um you know barry kosky with his magic flute and uh which was ex- extraordinary uh you know and uh pulitzer who was not so extraordinary and everything in between um elkana was her name and um i i like uh, for instance i really enjoyed the uh uh, what was his name? The the guy who did the ring, the German. Um, oh God, he's a famous director. Everybody hated it. I mean, uh, I I would say twenty five percent of the people loved it. Was this the one that was here? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was all painted like ch- children, and mm-hmm. which was, which was not on the nose. And I and I mean, to me, it was. It was painted like children, and that means something. But everybody else was like, God damn it, that's painted like a bunch of kids did it. I'm like, yeah, you dummies. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. Wow. <laughs> so. Uh, so I, like you said, because we are funded by the private sector and donations, there is a, a need to make it understood. And I think it's at great detriment to any art form that needs to be understood in order to survive. I think it's a real problem. It's, Andy Warhol would never have made a movie about somebody sleeping for eight hours. If, if it he needed, needed to explain it. Yeah, and exactly. And our work, we don't explain the music when the music starts. We let the music speak for itself. Um, we should be, how great would it be to be in a situation where the trust between the audience and what goes on across that threshold is so symbiotic that they come in and they know they're in for an experience. Right. They buckle their seatbelts and they're in for a ride. Right. Whatever that ride may Twin be. Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. I don't understand it, but I can't stop watching it. But it's because and it's, it means something, and I just don't get it. Exactly. It happens once or twice a, a decade for me, where I'm compelled to watch something that I don't understand. And not judging it because we right. don't understand it. We, it's obviously it's, beautiful and and so meticulously crafted, and there's a reason that I'm watching this. Exactly. Like there's a reason it was made so well. They obviously spent millions of dollars on it and I don't get it. And there's a and there's and a I sense love of love and appreciation and gratitude and humility. I think 
our art form in particular, because we're dealing with languages that we don't all speak, mm -hmm. there's already a barrier of, you know, whether it's considered high art or um, uh, inaccessible. Mm -hmm. And it's a musical language that not everybody speaks. Yeah. And then add concept into it or just setting it in the period during which it was written that and separate the performers from the audience by the orchestra and put the orchestra underneath the theater mm -hmm. it's or underneath the stage that it's not necessarily we're working uphill we're sisyphusing a mm -hmm. little bit to make it accessible and some of these new companies or younger companies with um, that are putting opera in a black box that are... Yeah, like Pacific Opera Project does all this great... What Pop does, mm -hmm. exactly. Or on-site opera in mm -hmm. New York that makes it ambulatory mm -hmm. to... Oh, and what Yuval has done. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, what Yuval has done in making opera accessible and... Compelling. And community-based. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about a community organizer mm -hmm. and um, just breaking down barriers... That's the that that's what gets me like real excited and gets me on a soapbox for the importance of our art form. Me too. And I wish I were just I wish I were more than just a singer on stage. I'd like to be more involved somehow, and I don't know how to do that. I, what? I, how are you not, Omar? <laughs> you're the host of a, a of a very important podcast in terms of bringing it's artists. Not enough. It's not enough. Okay. Well, you and me both in that we want to save the world, but it's. But that's happening a lot more with our generation. Sure. I think it's not. My father grew up listening to the broadcasts with the Cleveland Symphony, uh, the Cleveland Symphony, because that was the first place the Met um, Productions would tour was to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And he grew up listening in the living room on Sundays with his mom to the broadcasts. Mm -hmm. Um Last weekend, two weekends ago, I went to watch Exterminating Angel at AMC and, mm -hmm. you know, had popcorn and a soda. I don't eat popcorn. I don't drink a soda, right. but that's but theoretically, theater. Yeah. theoretically sure. you know, watching an opera about the deconstruction of the bourgeoisie and the world that we're living in. It's just it's so different. And I know it's so on the nose to say that. But if we continue to find ways like what Josh Shaw is doing in making opera not well in making it accessible yeah not so highfalutin and mm -hmm. and I was gonna say not but it's in in that respect of making it a positive rather than a negative right mm -hmm. I grew up opera was not allowed in my household because it was a competing art form with my grandmother's concert piano world wow even though you grew up singing yeah. I mean, I grew up singing musical theater and rock and roll. I see. Um, it was classical training, but I yeah. was, you know, on the Tracy Turnblatt cycle or, you know, circuit and, sure. you know, wanted to be Mama Rose and then singing like Ethel Merman <laughs> <laughs> at age four. Right. Um, but. I hope, I mean, it makes me sad that some people are offended by the statement that opera is musical theater. But if you look at the reason that opera was created. Well, it's just Italian musical theater. Well, it's, or French or German <laughs> yeah. or Czech. Right. But it was created. For the people. Popolo. And to recreate what Greek, you know, what the Greeks had. Mm -hmm. And Greek theater is not just spoken. It is danced. It is sung. It is moved. It is mm -hmm. spectacle. Mm -hmm. Um. So if we can find a way to continue to break those barriers down and reinvent, not reinvent the, ah, not reinvent the wheel, but reinvent maybe the car that the wheel is on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so then it will stay alive. Um, but political, political drama, political, I mean, it's, I, the ACLU is my like the love of my life and yep. I want everything to be well if we didn't have the ACLU we wouldn't be able to do what we do that's right we wouldn't have the freedom to you know yeah to say express. what we need to say even though we've got a constitution 
It's turning into just a piece of paper these days. Vesmer. That's a whole nother conversation. You know. Oof. If you had, uh, uh, well, let me rephrase that. Are there any shows, any operas that you haven't directed that you're dying to direct? Frau in a Schatten. Really? Not, not La Traviata. <laughs> <laughs> Remember we talked about German expressionism and like weird. Oh, Lulu, what second? I'm Lulu's sorry. A close second. What are we doing? Uh, Lulu was first. There Bo- we go. Votek. Vo- <laughs> sure. I have so funny stories. I you know, not not knowing a lot about opera. Um, our first semester of our grad program, I walked into my one of my professors' offices and said, "So can I start looking at Wojciech?" And he said, Wojciech, uh, Wojciech, sorry, mm-hmm. as a prospective thesis piece. And he laughed at me. He said, who's going to sing it? I said, I don't know, but it's going to be a great production. Yep. Um, I then went on this. He, he just, it, it became like a joke of what show would Sarah propose to do. We went through, um, gosh, what did I propose? Love uh, Three Oranges, Prokofiev? Um, no, we didn't get there. But what is the... Oh, Julie Tamar did it with um, the masks. Um, Oedipus. I mm. wanted to do Oedipus, sure. and I wanted to do the Stravinsky. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Wanted to do that. That got laughed down. Oedipus Rex. Uh huh. What else got laughed laughed away? We Lulu. Did the, we did that with oh the Berg Alban Berg. Uh-huh. We did the Oedipus with Sellers. Uh, uh, oh my god. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> God. Yes, please. Now that's a that's a director who I get behind. I you know, as a performer. But he pro- and this is the thing is everything is approached with love and grace yeah. and humility and for re- the respect of everybody in the room mm-hmm. and the respect of the art form and it may sound whatever it sounds, I don't care. Coming back to it, if we all both on the stage and off the stage could come from a place of love. Mhm. And come from a place of humility and grace about raising the piece up. Maybe we would be able to get away with putting more on the stage and it coming across less um, hostile and less accusatory. Well, if you're uneducated, that opera does seem hostile at times. You know, that's the biggest thing about um, the opposition that we're facing now is that it's all based on fear. And fear comes through ignorance. That's all it is. Fear is just a manifestation of ignorance. And we can't produce art if we're overcome by fear, if our culture is dominated by fear. We can't live and we can't have a functioning society right. on or off the stage. Right. That's right. Um, and it, whether it's the fear of will the paycheck get signed so that the company stays open mm-hmm. or the fear of the will my employees have health care or will my employees be able to pay their own bills mm-hmm. um, or will my pe- will the people like the piece? Mm-hmm. Well, my dad has a saying that if, um, well, he basically, you know, when, if everybody liked the same thing, well, why, that's why racetracks stay open. If everybody bet on the same horse, we wouldn't have racetracks. Um, so we can't all produce art with the expectation that everybody's going to like mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, getting a bad review can hurt our ego, but a bad review is again someone thinking. So if we can put our ego aside and see, ah, oh, this person is like really digging into this and really hates it for some reason. It tapped into something. Sure. Made them think. Worked for Stravinsky. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Sarah, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, You've Omar. Been a what a guest. pleasure. And it was great catching up. So nice. Been too long. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. The lovely and talented Sarah Woodser. Thanks for being on my show, Sarah. It was great reconnecting with you. Hope you all have a great rest of your week. Make sure to stay tuned for the Artist Almanac and Telephone Stories. We've got a couple episodes in the can, and we'll have a few more by the end of the year. I'll let you know when that's ready as well. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening. Remember to always be kind to one another. Until next time. You like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius. Get on to my show.